Welcome back to the program. Uh, coming up in hour two of the program, Jay McKee, the head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs, OHL champions, beating Windsor last night in a thrilling game seven. 11,000 people, by the way, yesterday in Hamilton. Uh, check that one out. Looking forward to talking to that defenseman. And speaking of defenders, uh, she's one of the greatest. Uh, Hockey Hall of Famer, uh, International Hall of Famer, gold medalist, and now the head coach of the Toronto Six of the Premier Hockey Federation. It is very much a pleasure to welcome Geraldine Heaney to the program. Geraldine, thanks so much for doing this today. How are you? Geraldine, do we have you on? Hello? Oh, there we go. We got you. Geraldine, it's Merrick here. How are you? We got you. Good, how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. First of all, thanks so much. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me today. C- congratulations uh, on taking over behind the bench for the uh, for the Toronto Six. We've you know long known your association with uh, Angela James, and that's a relationship that stretches back um, some years. Um, why was this interesting? Why was this opportunity, in your estimation, a a good fit, uh, an interesting fit? Why does this work for Geraldine Heaney? Well, I guess uh, my whole career was all about timing. Uh, I had the chance to play in the very first World Championships in 1990, and I had the chance uh, to play in the first Olympics in 98, and uh, this opportunity just came around, and it just seemed like the right time to coach my daughters. My daughter, uh, I guess, for about six years, and I just finished up coaching my son, Junior Bulldog AAA team last year. And decided, you know, I'll just take a year off of coaching. But uh, then I got a call from Angela James, and uh, it was just an opportunity that I didn't think I could turn down. It, it's kind of like Hotel California, Geraldine. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. It, there's always uh, someone who uh, who wants you behind the bench who could use your expertise. And, you know, I just saw the uh, the Toronto Six announce the, the re-signing of Soraya Tinker, who uh, I have all the time in the world for, and I can't help of, but think, like, if there's one person specifically that your expertise can help, you know, take her game to the next level, it's Soraya Tinker. Um, do you have a thought on her? Do you have a thought on your team and what you're looking forward to with this squad? Um, unfortunately, I haven't really seen a lot of these players. I'm just going off of uh, what Angela James has been telling me, and obviously I have a lot of trust in her on, on players, yeah. but she has mentioned uh, Soraya quite often. Um, yeah, so that's good. the first thing I need to do <laughs> is to uh, start getting to know these uh, young ladies as, uh, as people and, uh, more importantly, as hockey players. She's excellent on and off the ice. Uh, I think she's a, a, a real, uh, listen, she's a really talented defender. And I think you know, one day down the road when her, when her career's all wrapped up, you know, she's already indicated an interest in, in getting into the broadcast field. She's, she's one of these people that's, I mean, Geraldine, you were like this as well. Even when they're like super young, we're really focused and determined and eager. And people, you know, unlike me in their 20s, have their life together and know what they want to do. Uh, Tinker, Tinker's one of those people. What, what, were, your, what were you like in, the, in, in your early 20s, Geraldine? Um, I think I was a really devoted hockey player, especially at the time when uh, I was growing up playing hockey. There wasn't a lot of girls playing, but um, I loved the game so much that I took it so serious, as, just as these, these women do right now as professionals. And since I was in the Olympic program and always training and always wanting to be better and be the best, the best on the ice, uh, I, I tried to do everything I could possible to be there. And obviously, once I was on the national team for a few years, it's obviously harder to stay there. So therefore, you, you, you think you have to work a little bit harder just to compete with all these great other athletes that, that are around us. And as we all know, uh, there's a lot of great uh, female hockey players out there. And uh, I guess I was just very committed to the game. And I think the number reason I was was because uh, I had the passion and the love for the sport. 
And and it's really grown on that. You know, I, I'll just, uh, you know, my my wife, for example, she when she was going to art college at Leeds, one of the reasons she chose that college to go to was she can continue playing hockey. And she played with the, the Sheffield Shadows. And she's always quick to point out, yes, I played pro hockey in, in England, Jeff, but it was a, a rink above a bingo hall. And the ice was bad. We could only practice at 1030 at night. And, you know, there was ice disco on before us. And sometimes we get a flood and sometimes we wouldn't get a flood. She said, trust me, it was wasn't very glamorous uh, at all. You know, when you go back and, and you look at uh, the women's game, when you started in through your 20s, you mentioned the World Championships and the first Olympics in Nagano, et cetera, and you look at where it's at now, like it still has a long, long way to go. Like we all we all know the path that lays ahead here. But even just, you know, since you um, got involved in a serious capacity on the ice, what are the big changes that you've seen so far? Um, well, I guess, I mean, the number of girls that are playing hockey now, it's unbelievable. And like you said, the talent is uh, so much uh, greater now and, and better than it was and the competition. And there's a lot of women out there that want a place to play, like you said, after they've finished maybe uh, playing hockey at university level. And if you're not in the national program, there's really nowhere for them to go. And uh, there's so many talented women out there that you we're thankful that they have a place to play now. And uh, now that there's a professional women's league, uh, they have that opportunity to continue to play at a, at a high level and, and start getting, you know, financially rewarded for it. Obviously, like you said, it has a long way to go. But, you know, like when I first started trying out for the national team, uh, I had to pay for tryouts. So it has come what? a long way. And I know we want... Hang on. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. You had to pay for tryouts <laughs> for the national team? <laughs> Well, in, in 1990, yep, the first uh, in the provincials, when you went to the provincial tryouts, we had to actually pay to go to tryouts. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people probably don't know that. So, like I said, the game's wow. come a long way, and and it, sure, it has a long way to go. But, um, you know, I'm just happy to see where it, it is today and the approach that the PF, uh, PHS have taken and, and, you know, the opportunity to work with Angela James. What was 1990 like for you? Take, take us back to that first uh, that first World Championship. Well, it was unbelievable. Like everybody, everybody talks about the first time they put that Canadian jersey on, but this was the first time any women put the Canadian jersey on, so it was even more special. Um, just having the opportunity, it was just something I never ever thought would happen in my lifetime, and uh, to have the opportunity to represent my country and play and, and be in the very first World Championships um, was exciting. Something obviously I'll never forget. I'm sure most people won't forget our uniforms, and we've come a long way with the uniforms as well. Um, from wearing yes <laughs> uh, so uh, but you know what it was uh, a great experience and uh, something that I'll, I'll cherish forever you know I've got uh, one, one of my neighbors uh, she's she's 12 years old uh, her father is a, a dear friend of mine and we do a rink in our backyard every year and, and one year and a couple of years ago Aaron Ambrose and Cassidy Sove were in the area and they came by and they had their skates and sticks and we played and, and Zoe uh, Sullivan is a a, a a girl that went uh, went to school with with my boys, and so I was like, "Hey, come on, Matt, you got to get you got to get Zoe to come out. This will be this will be cool for." Her. And she so was a little bit intimidated, a little bit like, "Here's these you know you know superstar uh, female hockey players." And she went out, and Aaron and Casper were fantastic with her for the whole session, and it's now fan for life. Like like that's it. It's it's everything's about Ambrose and Sove and what she's doing and watching all the all the uh, the Olympic games and the gold medal, and that's like instant fan for life who are the people that 
you know, that, that, that sort of allowed you to cling to the game uh, the way that you did? Like everybody sort of, you know, has someone that they're inspired by or, or, or looks up to. Is there, you know, is there an Aaron Ambrose or Cassidy Sauvé for you for, you know, the, the example that I raised with the young Zoe Sullivan? Was there someone like that for you, Geraldine? Uh, yeah, definitely. And obviously, they weren't female athletes, which uh, was unfortunate. Yeah. But um, like, the, you know, uh, Bobby Orr obviously is uh, one that I tried to, you know, um, look at my game after the way he played, and and mm-hmm. Ray Bork. So they were probably the two top, uh, obviously, NHL players uh, that I looked up to, and you know, just to see their work ethic and and not only their work ethic on the ice, the type of people they are off the ice, and like you said, for Aaron Ambrose and them to go out and you know, work with young kids and uh, give them the opportunity to uh, meet and uh, they become your idols. So uh, I think it's great that these young girls have female role models to look up to now. Uh, it really is awesome. Um, I, want, I, want to, I want you to share, share your thoughts about Angela James, who's a pioneer and elite level player. And the one thing that I always try to go out of my way to mention as well, she may have been the toughest, you know, female hockey player ever. Like Angela James was scary tough uh you know that Geraldine more than uh more more than most people what can you tell us about how Angela James played um she played like you said she had that physical presence out in the ice and I had the opportunity to uh, play against her um and also uh as a teammate and I'd rather have on my team than playing against her so uh we used to get into it a couple of times but uh you know what on the ice it was uh we weren't friends but off the ice uh, uh we're very good friends but Yeah, she was that power forward. You know, everybody, you know, kind of refers her to the Gretzky, but I kind of think of her as like the the Cam Neely type type player, you know, down the wing. She was unstoppable once she got moving, and uh, she wasn't going to go around you. She was going to go through you. So uh, a great competitor and, uh, and obviously a great teammate. So I'm I'm sensing something here with you, Geraldine. You you've referenced Bobby Orr, you've referenced Ray Bork, and now you've referenced Cam Neely. What is it with you and the Boston Bruins? Um, I'm a Boston fan, <laughs> but I know it's hard to believe. I'm a, I'm a Leafs fan too. And everyone gives me heck about it. I grew up a Leafs fan, but obviously those players, uh, kind of attracted me to the Boston Bruins. Yeah, uh, no, listen, I don't, I don't blame you. I still got it somewhere in my closet, a Cam Neely number eight Jersey that I used to wear in high school. That's still knocking around somewhere in my closet. So I get it. Um, listen, congratulations on the appointment. Uh, the Toronto six are a better team because you're the head coach and the PHF and women's hockey in general, uh, is, is better off with you very much involved in it. Geraldine, thank you so much for taking time today. Best of luck next season with the six. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Geraldine Heaney, uh, Hockey Hall of Famer, one of the best, defen- a very offensive-minded. You know, the first words out of her mouth about inspirations is Bobby Orr. That's no surprise at all. Um, I mean, do you want to talk about joining the rush? Uh, you want to talk about scoring goals from the back end, setting up plays? Um, she was it, uh, I'm telling you, a complete pioneer. Uh, in women's hockey, alongside Angela James and Cami Granado, those were, you know, many will point to as one of, again, not the only OGs uh, in the game when it comes to advancing the women's game because there were plenty before them. 
but of that crop, it was always Geraldine Heaney, Angela James, and Cameron Granado, and they were the first uh, inducted into the IIHF Hall of Fame and also inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, outstanding, uh, outstanding athletes, each and every one of them. Angela James, now the general manager and one of the owners of the Toronto Six, Geraldine Heaney, now head coach of the Toronto PHF uh, franchise. As we bring in Matt Marchese, our producer here, uh, what did you make of last night, Maddie? Like, that was one of those games you just didn't want to end. Uh, you wanted the overtime to go a couple of periods. I don't care how late I'm going to stay up. I don't care how deep the bags are under my eyes when I wake up in the morning and dragging myself around the shop and how many cups of coffee it's going to take to get you through the day. That was just flat out a great game, Maddie. It was. Firstly, I just want to say you had a great opportunity to say, speaking of fantastic athletes, here's one or not. Um, no. But whatever, you'll get it next no, time. No. Speaking of sitting, uh, <laughs> ironing the couch with your ass while athletes do their thing, it's my producer, Matt Marchese. Hey, I don't get paid to be an athlete. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> last night's game was, I agree, it was one of those that you didn't want to end, but it didn't, it started off as we know of like, it looked like, Oh boy, this is not going to be a fun one. It's going to be over early. And no then way. you thought that? Then, no, I think that a lot of people would have thought that, but I know better than to doubt the uh, Tampa Bay lightning. Don't. Um, no, no, just don't, don't do because it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're over that now. Um, the one thing that stood out for me and you mentioned it, that pass by Nikita Kucherov, I'm, I'm watching it happen live. And I just went, oh, my God, that was disgusting. And my wife's like, what? And I was like, you need to watch this play. And she looks at it, and she's just like, okay. I'm like, no, it's not just okay. That's like superhuman, that move. And it was was the subtlety of it. Well, you know what the the, – I think the best part about it was, too, because we've seen – we saw Kucherov do that in the Florida series against Aaron Ekblad – um, but did you notice who the two defensemen were? The one that he beat wide and the one that he slid it across to get to Palat? Yeah, it just happened to be the top pair of uh, Devon <laughs> Taves who he beat and then Kale McCarr who could not stop the pass going across. Kind of good. That's the best pair in the NHL. Like with, with, all, with, all, with all due respect to all the great pairs and we look at Ekblad and Uyghur and we look at... You know, McAvoy and Grizzlick at the beginning of the year, McAvoy and Lindholm uh, towards the end. You know, we look at um, uh, Hannafin and Rasmus Anderson were outstanding. Before the injuries, Drew Doughty and Mikey Anderson were fantastic. But there was no one, Maddie. There is no pair better in the NHL this season, period, than Kale McCarr and Devontae's. And no. Kucherov just like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, watch me, watch me, watch me toe drag Taves and then fire a great backhand pass over to to Palat for a tap in. The the, <laughs> the thing that gets me the thing that gets me with Kucherov is, and if you watch, if you rewatch the Ekblad play, he totally looks him off. It's not like Ekblad was looking at the puck. Ekblad was doing his job, but he totally looked him off. And even last night, it was the subtlety of that move. It was the the to go inside out. And he just like he turnstiled Devon Taves. Like he wasn't even there. And and how close he had the puck to Devon Taves. Like the margin for error was so small in that mm-hmm. moment. And then the pass going across was as if Perfect. nobody else was on the ice. I'm just like, this is, you know, and that's why when we 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 talk about Nikita Kucherov a lot, but it feels like a lot of the time we only talk about him around playoff time because he's just missed so much time. In his career. Yeah. God, he missed a whole season. But when we talk about him as, 
you know, one of the best players in the game right now. I know there yeah. are some games where he's not there, but when he is on, he is frighteningly good. Like his playoff so, numbers are insane. They're outstanding. And when we had Curtis McElhaney on the other day, I don't know how we got around to talking about Kucherov's tape. I think McElhaney may have brought it up about how he always changes the color of his tape. And I think McElhaney believed it was to throw goaltenders off. So I sent that note to Freege in Denver. I'm like, hey, you might want to get, you know, the producer of the pro of hockey night is Brian Spear. You might want to get Spearsy to, to, to have a look at this, see how many times Kucherov has ta- changed his blade tape because McElhaney told us that he does it to throw goaltenders or he believed it was to throw goaltenders off. So Freege asked him that. At uh, at media day, and Kucherov, a Fried said was stunned that anybody would notice that, and B uh, said I don't do it to throw goaltenders off. I just see who's hot, and I emulate. I try to emulate things about them, and I uh, I like I, I change my tape pattern based on who I like watching, and you know whose tape pattern he has right now. And the now that I mention it, you're going to go back and look at Kucherov from last night, and you're going to see it. You know whose tape job he has on right now. Kale McCarr. Artemi Panarin. Mm, the yes. toe. He's got yes. the toe tape job. It's, it's but, totally Artemi Panarin. By the way, and I had this yeah. conversation with Mark Savard once because he's a big tape, uh, stick taping aficionado. Oh, look at the videos um, online, bud. Yeah, and I do not understand how guys play with tape just on the toe of their stick. I tr- Again, I'm not an NHL player. I, I understand that. But I tried it once, and the puck kept flying off my stick. I was like, I don't understand how these guys do it. I know they're um, incredible. Maddie, Maddie, I know they're Maddie, incredible. We Maddie, had this conversation. Maddie, 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 Maddie. I got to tell you something, but just as a friend here. I know. Uh, it's not about the tape. It's about your hands. Yeah, I my hands are pretty not, decent nothing, for a beer league the, guy. The puck keeps flying off my blade. I must need tape. I, I don't know that it's tape, bud. He, Savard agreed with me, though. He said there are some plays where if he you had know, tape on their stick, it wouldn't go. It wouldn't fly off. I'm you know saying. what it's like. You know what it's like, Matty. What you just said. It's kind of like saying, you know, they say there's one jerk at every party, but I don't believe it because I've never <laughs> met the guy. Maybe Fine. the problem is you, Maddie. Maybe Fine. the problem is you. Uh, we'll hit a break. Chris Cuthbert joins me here in a couple of moments. Play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada. Great game one. We'll talk about that. Jay McKee, head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Towards the bottom of the hour, the Bulldogs. Congratulations, OHL champions, beating Windsor last night. Hour two of the Merrick Show on the horizon. Across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in a moment. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of the program. I want to thank Geraldine Heaney for stopping by in Hour 1. Looking forward to talking to Jay McKee at the bottom of the hour. Head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who last night captured the J. Ross Robertson Cup. OHL championship and beating the Windsor Spitfires final score of 6-1 to so they will represent the OHL at the Memorial Cup. The Oil Kings of Edmonton come out of the West. Shawinigan comes out of the queue. The host team, the St. John Sea Dogs. Always a fun tournament and a really fun game last night. 
Man, you just didn't want it to end. Uh, and there to document all of it, the uh, the big overtime win by the Colorado Avalanche is Chris Cuthbert, play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada. How are you, CC? I'm good, Jeff. Uh, good to be with you. I, I, I do want to apologize. I will not be able to provide as many interesting sound effects as Elliot did in the first hour. So uh, <laughs> the bongos. Uh, apologies for that. I, I don't play <laughs> the drums. He's walking, walking downtown through like a busker festival or something. It's always, it's always CC. Whenever he comes on, it's always this sort of side game that's played on Twitter. Um, what is Elliot doing? Whether it's birds chirping, whether it's gla- glasses uh, getting put away or plates coming out, or maybe sometimes I think he's gone through a car wash once or twice. It's always, it's like our version of, it's our audio version of Where's Waldo. It's more like Where's Elliot and and what is he doing? Today was about street performers and bongos, but. I digress. Um, but speaking of uh, speaking of sounds, really lively crowd yesterday at uh, at Ball Arena, and Kevin Bieksa making the making the the salient point that this is a really underrated crowd. Like Avalanche fans really don't get their due, and it's great that they're on the biggest platform right now because the hockey world can see just what Avalanche fans are really all about. And man, what an I mean, I'm just watching this thing from my office here at home. I can imagine only being there. That seemed like it was an outstanding atmosphere yesterday. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's the, the great thing about Colorado is there's there's history and and uh, you know the the fans of of that team that won in '96 and 2001 uh, uh, was you know was a great crowd then. And then obviously there was a tail off. But I think uh, you know since McKinnon came. There's been that expectation, and and the 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 fan base is built back up, and uh, it is as good a crowd as any in the league. I, I you know, I I, I got to tell you, I was wowed by what uh, I felt and saw and heard in Edmonton because uh, that was as good as it gets. But uh, but I got to say, Colorado uh, fans are, are raising the uh, bar as well. Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've always maintained during the Oilers run in 2006, um, I went to games against Anaheim, games against San Jose, and that was the loudest building I had ever been in. Uh, and that still stands as the loudest building I've ever been in. Uh, what's the loudest building you've ever been in, Chris? Well, you know, I, I, I guess back in the Chicago Stadium days. Uh, right, I, yep. I, I, yeah. I remember uh, uh, the Hawks winning a playoff round and I, I was on the ice interviewing Ed Belfour and I had no chance of hearing anything he was saying, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just go back to Colorado and Edmonton. And, and, you know, I, I think part of it is that they've been there before, but then there's been this long wait. And uh, I really do think that both of those fan bases savor the opportunity to get back to where they were. And, uh, and I think it's kind of cool that, uh, that they, you know, obviously the teams want to win badly, but I, I get mm-hmm. that this fan base has a certain urgency and desperation. And, and so did Edmonton. I want to get your thoughts on, um, on Joe Sackick, CC. And we all know Joe Sackick as a player. You covered him as a player. You called some of his great games. Um, and now we watch him as a general manager. And I was making the point on yesterday's show that outside of Nathan McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog, who were both brought in by Greg Sherman, this is, this is Joe Sackick's team. Like he's had his hand on the wheel for, you know, every waiver claim, every free agent signing, every draft pick, all of it. This is Joe Sackick's team. He has constructed this roster. Um, do you have a thought on 
both Joe Sackick, the player, and did you ever think he would transition into management? And if so, did you think he'd be this good at it? Because he's really put together a, an outstanding team here. He has, and, and I'm not sure I did. You know, he's always been the understated, the quiet leader, and maybe that uh, that suits the management level better than a, than a guy that might uh, be brash. And let's say Patrick Waugh would have had a completely different management style if, if he had have, uh, been in that chair. I, I don't know how valid this is, but I have often made the comparison of Joe Sackick to Pat Gillick in the sense that for a while, Joe didn't do a lot. He was very, um, he, he was very uh, 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 methodical about what he did. He didn't rush into things. And for a while, it didn't look like he was, you know, going to make that big move. And then he started. And the Matt Duchesne uh, trade yeah. was uh, highway robbery. Um, and And now you look at what he did even at the deadline and, I mean, he he just uh, he 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 hit on everybody, and uh, the perfect additions to this team. And I know you guys were talking about Val Nichushkin, and and that find yeah. is uh, off the charts as well. But uh, but to look at Manson on the back end to complement the speed and the skill that they had on the blue line, uh, Arturi Lekkinen was just such a, a perfect fit in there. I, I'm I'm really disappointed that uh, Andrew Cogliano's uh, not able to go at least at the start of this series because another terrific addition, Darren Helm has been outstanding oh. in these playoffs. I I can't get over how impressive Darren Helm has been, and and uh, and, and the list goes on. He has just uh, hit it out of the park with every addition, and uh, it's very impressive. You know, the the, the Lekkonen thing to me is fascinating because, and we understand it, like sometimes when you've been with a player for a while, you tend to put that player in one box and that player can't get out of it. But, you know, here's Arturi Lekkonen with the Colorado Avalanche. And in Montreal, this guy would not get a sniff on the power play. There was, there was not a chance. He had his one role and he was going to play that role. He seems, well, obviously he's playing more roles with Colorado right now and excelling. Um, it re- it really is, and listen, we see this with Nick Paul in in Tampa. New opportunities, new environment, uh, new trust, etc. And he's flourishing. But for whatever reason, the environment that's been created in Colorado, whether it's Valeri Nachushkin who came off those uh, that horrible season with the Dallas Stars, whether it's um, you know the aforementioned Arturi Lekkonen. Uh, who comes in from Montreal and all of a sudden is flourishing in the role we thought he would play and other more offensive roles as well. You know, they've created an environment here where, I'll tell you, CC players don't get pigeonholed and it benefits everybody. Like, that's really one of the vibes I get from Colorado. Like you mentioned, you mentioned Darren Helm. And most teams would look at him and say, yeah, you know what? Sure, he's 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 fast, but he's 35 years old. There's no room here for him. Well, they've got him with Lekkonen. They got him with Logan O'Connor, and that's a hot line. And Darren Helm is scoring big goals and making big plays and contributing. Like it just seems like they've made an environment here, CC, where guys can flourish. Yeah, I I think that that starts with Joe. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with Jared Bednar. Tell you a little story about Bednar. We uh, we first met Jared Bednar in the forty eight point season, and that wasn't that long mm. ago. And and I think that's. Uh, uh, of a, a great reminder of how far this team has come in in a in a very short time, and I, I remember walking away from our first meeting with Jared and thinking, 
wow, what a great guy, what a bright guy, what an inspiring guy. It's too bad he's not going to be around here very long because he's probably <laughs> not going to make it through the first season. But look at him now. So I, I think that's part of it. I also think it's I think it's Gabe Landeskog's leadership. Um, I think that there is some kind of uh, balance between uh, the calm and the distinguished Landeskog and the highly emotional, demanding Nate McKinnon, who, if you're not giving it all in practice, you'll hear from him, even if he's not the guy with the C. Uh, but I think there is that, uh, you know, that way those two, the yin and the yang of uh, of mm-hmm. Landis Cog and McKinnon as well. But just, just to finish on, on Lekkonen, because when we started the Edmonton series, Lekkonen had come off the St. Louis series on the top line. And when they started the uh, the next round against Edmonton, Lekkonen was now on the second line with Nazem Kadri before he got hurt. And now without Kadri, without Cogliano, the line shuffled again for game one of the Stanley Cup final. And there's Lekkonen on a newly formed third line. And uh, it doesn't seem to matter where he is. He's uh, He can make a contribution. And as you said, also on the power play and the penalty kill. Uh, the Kucherov goal last night, what was the most impressive thing for you? Uh, the play by Kucherov, the finish by Palat, or the fact that he did it against the best defensive pair in the NHL, Kale McCarr and Devon Taves? Kucherov's ridiculous. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I don't know if we say enough about him. Um, he is uh, he is enigmatic. And uh, and I think even John Cooper said you you got to take a little bit of the uh, – of the good with the bad with Kucherov because, uh, he, you know, he plays the game uh, at his own speed and uh, and sometimes it almost looks like what he feels like it. But is there a guy that is slicker and smoother? And and I, I did ask Craig, I think, on the air, but we, we talked about it off the air too. Uh, you, you know, here's here's Makar and Taves, who just finished with the fastest guy they have to face in the NHL in Connor McDavid, and all of that speed, and and then they have to go against a guy who is almost as gifted offensively, who is trying to slow the game down to his pace, and uh, it really is, uh, you know, you're going from a Nolan Ryan fastball to uh, kind of a, a of, of a Phil Necro knuckleball uh, trying <laughs> to hit it, and and um, and Kucherov is just uh, he's an amazing guy to watch uh he really is uh you know one of the things i was making this point with elliot you know thinking about last night's game out on a run this morning and i said to myself you know heaven didn't have a good game maybe it was he listen he got a stick in the face from josh manson early um sorelli's line struggled uh against nathan mckinnon's line so he didn't have a great day andre vasilevsky as we've seen through these playoffs, does not do well in game ones. He turns it around games two through seven. His save percentage is like around 930. Uh, It's like 840 uh, in in game ones. Uh, But game ones aren't kind to Andre Vasilevsky. I say to myself, given all of those realities and all of those truths, I think Tampa's going to be just fine because they were still one shot away of taking a one nothing series lead. Has anything changed at all? For you about Tampa, for me it hasn't. I still think that this is going to be a long series and we'll see better from Tampa. Um, But if I'm Tampa, I say, you know what? Some of our big dogs didn't have good games yesterday and we were still right there. To me, this is still good fortune for Tampa. 
you know, I, I don't disagree at all. In fact, I think if it had gone the other way last night after they tied it, if they'd won, you know, I think it would have been a very different series. Just just, just as a little sidebar indicator of, of the way Tampa believes in itself, you know, we get in the elevator last night after the game with Julian Breesblatt, and they've lost, so respectfully, we, we're not going to engage in conversation. And, and Breesblatt immediately looks at us and says, well, that would have been good for ratings last night. I mean, there's no panic. <laughs> He's not kicking the door down. You know, there's no change in belief. And I, I think you're right. I, I, I thought Hedman really struggled last night. Uh, clearly, that was not the Vasilevsky we're, we're used to. I, mm-hmm. I think there's more to give, uh, clearly, from uh, from a Lightning point of view. Uh, but I also think uh, there's there's... There's a lot of upside for, for Colorado, too. As as awesome and jaw-dropping as Nathan McKinnon is every night, I think there were times in the game where he was still fighting it a little bit. I think there was a little bit of rust there early in the game, and when he got it going, at, at times I think he can be guilty of trying to do too much. And uh, I, I saw a little of that. Uh, I think uh, as brilliant as Kale McCarr is, and he might be my favorite guy in the league right now, uh, I, I think he's going to make adjustments to the way, you know, and, and Kevin talked about it last night on the broadcast, but nine shots that didn't get to the net. I, I think that's a guy who is going to make the adjustments for Colorado. So as good as a, as a base for game one and game ones are usually can be a little bit uh, ugly. And, and I, I thought for a game one, that was a brilliant game, but I, I think we've, we've, we've got a lot of room to grow in the series for both teams. Uh, I don't disagree with uh, Chris Cuthbert, play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada. Colorado grabs a one nothing series lead. Andre Burakovsky, the overtime hero. Um, a lot of players that are on uh, expiring contracts were the heroes last night um, for their teams. Was there was there one player on on either side that really like stood out to you? To me, I'm going I'm going back and forth from game one, and we'll do this with all the games of who was the best player, and I can't decide whether it was Valeri Nichushkin or Gabriel Landeskog. Um, yeah, do you have one of those two as your as the best player for you from last night, or is there a, a mystery third candidate here? Well, here's a bit of an inside joke because um, I don't know why it stuck with me, and it stuck with me even after he went uh, 0 for 57 in Dallas. But um, back in Val Nichushkin's rookie season, uh, Yarmir Yager, I think they they played uh, Dallas three times in the in the space of a month, and Nichushkin was outstanding in those games. And uh, I think it was 2013. Yager made a statement that uh, we've been we've been waiting to use about that uh, one day uh, Valeri Nichushkin would be the best player in the league. Now, mm. clearly that never happened, but that was the <laughs> yeah. upside that uh, Yarmir Yager saw when, you know, he was coming into the NHL as a number 10 pick overall. And uh, so my antenna is always up on Nichushkin. I thought he... He had one exceptional game in the Oilers series, and I I really did think he was good last night. And I mentioned McKinnon because I thought there were times where McKinnon uh, could have shot, held it for that extra split second, in a couple of occasions did get to better ice, but still I I thought he was was getting greedy. I thought Nachushkin was just 
was just shooting the puck when he had the opportunity except on the game-winning goal. And, and I thought that uh, that he kept Vasilevsky off balance a little bit with the way he played uh, in the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, so for me, it was Natushkin last night. And uh, um, and I know that uh, Jared Bednar had talked about Natushkin being an elite defensive player, which I, I know fits into your Selkie Trophy narrative. But, uh, but Bednar, uh, a little earlier in the playoffs, uh, went out of his way to talk about how valuable Natushkin is uh, as a defensive player as well. And that was one of the reasons he moved him up with McKinnon and Landeskog in the head-to-head matchup against McDavid. So uh, he's a valuable guy, and, uh, and, and for, for him last night was his game. Uh, absolutely. But uh, before I let you go, yesterday I was talking about, and I was talking to Elliot about this and a couple of other people, uh, your favorite Stanley Cup final of all time. And CC for me was 87, Edmonton Oilers and Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, that game six when J.J. Daniel scores to give the Flyers a 3-2 lead, I don't know that I've heard a building go as crazy as those Flyers fans did. Uh, for that goal, Edmonton ends up winning it at home in, in game seven in a thrilling seven-game series. Um What's your version of my 1987 being the, the, the best Stanley Cup final of all time? Or maybe is 87 yours? I don't know. I don't want to bias the jury here. Yeah, no, you, you probably have because 87 was special. And, uh, and I remember being in the rink for, for those games. And, uh, and, and I believe it was 87, a, a little story that uh, um, that was the Oilers led 3-1 coming home, I believe. Uh, one of the series, the Oilers had a 3-1 series lead, and I remember somebody was going around the press box with a schedule of where the cup would be at certain bars that night. And uh, <laughs> and uh, obviously that became premature. Um, I, I will, I'll, I'll tell you that I'm probably going to answer, I'm still waiting for my favorite, because I guess uh, I, I, I want to live one as the play-by-play guy, and uh, and uh, and I think this has a chance to be in that discussion. Um, uh, historically, I guess that Ranger Canuck one would be uh, would be up there as well. Um, but uh, but uh, one of the Oiler ones, and and I, you know, I we reflected back, and I hate being the old guy that's always doing this because uh, uh, you know we're laughing after the game. But uh, here we were referencing '83 and '84 when when more than half our audience you know wasn't around. But uh, that those <laughs> that 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 Oiler breakthrough in 1984 against the dynasty yeah. uh, is yeah. one that really uh, you know it, it it raised eyebrows. The the new kids on the block. Uh, starting that Oiler run in, in the 80s was was pretty special. You know, this series does have a sort of 83-84 vibe about it. Like I've been comparing this Tampa Bay Lightning team to the, to, to the 1983 New York Islanders um, and, you know, the, uh, the Colorado Avalanche to that 83-84 uh, Edmonton Oilers squad. So, listen, I think that's, uh, that's a comparison that's as, as legit as it comes. Uh, great game and uh, great job in Game 1. We are very much looking forward to Game 2. We have to wait an extra day. Game 2 doesn't go until Saturday on Hockey Night in Canada. Chris Cuthbert, along with his partner Craig Simpson, will be there to document all of it. Thanks, CC. Always a pleasure. Awesome, Jeff. Me too. Thanks. Chris Cuthbert, uh, play-by-play voice for Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet, uh, doing a great job, as always, uh, in the broadcast booth alongside Craig Simpson. Um, That was a great game last night.
Like, I don't know what your favorite Stanley Cup final was. Um, and maybe, as you, you mentioned, uh, Chris Cuthbert mentioned, maybe your your favorite one is still on the horizon. Maybe someone, a, a Game 7 hasn't done it for you or a Stanley Cup final hasn't done it for you. But this one does have the potential uh, to be that, based on what we saw last night. These are two heavyweight teams. These are two teams with great storylines getting there. Um, it's taken the Colorado Avalanche a little bit longer than I think we all expected to get there. Uh, we started talking about this team a couple of seasons ago as legitimate Stanley Cup contenders. We all know about the second round hurdle, which has now been jumped over. That narrative is done um, for the Avalanche. And you saw it early yesterday, right? Like you saw it early with this Avalanche team. Now, I I picked Tampa in this one. I have a hard time betting against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, but you knew that Colorado was going to come out in those first 10 minutes. Like if you're, if you're John Cooper, you're saying to your team, look, we just have to get through the first 10 minutes. We know what's coming. We know these guys are going to be house on fire, house on fire, house on fire. We need to stand up to them for 10 minutes and minimize, minimize the damage. But it's, Landeskog, of course, it's Landeskog. Landeskog, who scores the first goal, the captain of the team. It's Valeri Nachushkin who gives them the 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 two nothing, the two, the two nothing lead. Valeri Nachushkin, who is, you know, the uh, the breakout one of the breakout stars for this Avalanche team. The reels have known how good Valeri Nachushkin has been for this Avalanche team. How underrated. Like when we talk about underrated around the NHL, there's always a few players. Um, that I'll go out of my way to mention whether it's you know Jonas Brodeen, defenseman for the Minnesota Wild, who I still think is the the best backward skater the game uh, the game has in it right now. Like, there's a number of players you look at and say, yeah, that guy's under. Devon Taves is another player that's that's underrated. Valeri Nachushkin, the past couple of seasons has been right up there on a lot of people's lists, but now everybody knows about him. Now everybody knows how good. So this guy now this season moves out of the realm of underrated. It's hard to be underrated when everybody knows how great you are. Like, he's taking that step. Kale McCarr has taken the step into greatness. And off the Norris Trophy page and onto the Hart Trophy page, like, that's where he's going to be considered after this performance in in these playoffs. But this one has a legitimate chance of being one of the great... Stanley Cup finals of the salary cap era like 2006 was a special one anytime you're going to go seven games it's going to be special I get it but one of the things that made 2006 really special and that game seven really special were the fans and you may look at Raleigh and say ah non-traditional sport non-traditional sports uh market how good is it going to be that is one of the best crowds I think we've ever seen in a game seven, they did not sit down. You know, that's always the mark of a fan base that's right into it. You know, what's the old cliche? You know, we'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the end. You didn't even need to sell the seat. Like you could have sold out that building, taken the seats out, and everyone would have said, well, fine, we're going to stand anyway. Now, those Carolina Hurricanes fans stood for three periods and cheered their teams on. We are not sitting down here. Now, again, I'll offset that by that 2006 Oilers crowd, which was the loudest building I've ever been in. And even up on, you know, the media ring up at the top, you can still hear it. And it was deafening. 
you know, that was some of the best dueling crowds I've ever seen and I've ever been a part of. That was deafening loud. But based on what we saw last night, and we'll see what happens when the venue shifts to uh, Amelie Arena in Game 3, Avalanche fans set a bar. Like, if I'm a Tampa Bay Lightning fan and I have tickets to Game 3 and I'm going, I'm like, all right, Tampa, or all right, Colorado. That's that's as far as you want to drag us out to deep water? Let's see if I can drag us out even deeper. Because that was a spectacular crowd last night. That was a crowd that was loud from the get-go. You know, it's interesting, Elliot, on the podcast, I asked him, like, what was it like before? Uh, before the game started, before warm-up, all of it. He said it was really, really quiet. He said, like, you, we, were, like we were all wondering, like, how is this going to come off on television? What is this going to be like? Because the fan experience, you know, really enhances the viewer experience. Like, if you have a great hockey game, but the fans are all sitting on their hands, it doesn't exactly enhance the experience as a viewer watching from your couch, from your bed, wherever you're watching the game. But Colorado was right there and reflected that energy and reflected that excitement. Like that was like th- th- that's all you want in a crowd. What we saw last night at Ball Arena. Bar's been raised. They'll do it one more time Saturday night in Denver, and then the venue shifts to Emily Arena. Uh, a couple of great performances last night that we've already gone over as well. I do want to mention Andre Burakovsky who scores the overtime winner. Yes, it's a great pass by Valeri Nichushkin. And yes, it's another giveaway by Victor Hedman. Hedman did not have his best of all possible games last night. So if you're Tampa, you think to yourself, okay, did he just get the bad one out of the way early? I think if you're Tampa, you hope that he just got the bad one out of the way early. But when you look at Hedman, there's a couple of things. You know, we think back to that Rangers series and getting hit in the head. Um, by Alexi Lafreniere, which is still a play which baffles me how there wasn't at least a hearing by the Department of Player Safety. It kind of looks textbook to me. And then yesterday, uh, tangled up with Josh Manson, Manson's stick catches him across the face and nothing. So he wasn't in the best of all possible moods. Was he injured a little bit? Was he certainly dinged up? We can safe to say that he was certainly dinged up. Uh, for yesterday's game. But that is not the Victor Hedman that we are used to, ladies and gentlemen. We're used to the uh, elite uh, Victor Hedman using his body to box out, getting the puck up the ice efficiently. It looked like he was rushing things, getting picked off. Uh, I don't know that he was ever frustrated. And if he was, and maybe he was, he certainly didn't show it. But that was not the best of all possible offerings from Victor Hedman. Um, There were... You know, I mentioned Andre Burakovsky there a second ago, and I got sidetracked talking about Hedman. Um, he's always been one of the more enigmatic players in the NHL. At times, I remember watching him with the Washington Capitals. At times, when he's put it all together, you say, ah, that's why he got drafted where he did. That's why, and that's where this guy can be valuable. You know, I watched him play that one year with the Erie Otters, and he was remarkable. You know, it's it's he was born in Austria, but he's Swedish. He's it's very rare that Swedes um, leave Europe to play before the NHL or before they they turn pro. They tend to stay. 
No, one of the notable examples is the captain of the team across the ice from Tampa yesterday, Gabriel Landeskog, who became one of, although I don't think he was the first European captain in the history of the OHL, I think Joseph Vasicek with Sault Ste. Marie might have been before him. Anyway, things to, things to check on. Um, but, you know, he he came over, played junior one year of junior hockey in the OHL, and as Peter Baugh has written about recently at, at The Athletic, there was something just different about Andre Burakovsky, how he played, certainly about the way that he shot. And, you know, you, you wondered, okay, I wonder what impact this is going to have when he makes it to the NHL. Because I don't think many disputed the fact that Andre Burakovsky was going to play in the National Hockey League. But getting there, it's kind of been a collection of stops and starts. At times he'll look great. At times he'll go completely cold. At times he'll go stretches without producing anything, and then other times he'll get on an absolute heater. He must be like that talent is so frustrating to coach. And I understand how hard a thing consistency is, and how important consistency is to to pro sports, specifically hockey. But I was happy for Burakovsky last night. He's someone that I've always been waiting for to really hit, to really pop. Maybe it never happens at a consistent level for Andre Burakovsky in his season. Would be a real shame because he has all the skill to make that happen. Um, so I was happy that it was him that uh, that scored that goal. Uh, great pass by Valeria Nishushkin. We'll see what happens in game two when there will probably be a whole new slate of players we talk about cementing their reputation and starting their own legacy or cementing perhaps their own legacy great game by Valeria Nishushkin last night great game by Gabriel Landeskog last night but the interesting thing about this one Vasilevsky early was just plain bad and by the end leveled out maybe you know as a pendulum overcorrects to find its balance he did that um, but Darcy Kemper, I think to be generous, just okay. Just okay. And we've seen it before. Colorado can handle having a goaltender that's just okay. They can play themselves around that. They can play themselves out of that. They have that much skill and talent on that team. But whew, when you have a goal saved above average like Kemper did last night, you do not want to be playing the Tampa Bay Lightning. Because they can exploit and they can hurt. Colorado got away with winning with average goaltending in game one. Can they do it two games in a row? We will find out on Saturday. Uh, We'll take a break here on the program. We'll come back with Jay McKee. He is the head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs, OHL champions, uh, on their way to St. John to represent the Ontario Hockey League in the Memorial Cup, representing the Western League, the Edmonton Oil Kings, and representing the Q, the Shawinigan Cataracts host team, St. John Sea Dogs. Merrick Show continues in moments across the Sportsnet radio network. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Jeff Merrick Show. Um, Matt Marchese and Jeff's power actually just went out. There's a big storm in the southern Ontario region for those that are listening. And 
whenever it rains, Jeff's power goes out. So uh, Matt Marquez is going to finish things off here. We're glad to be joined on the line by Hamilton Bulldogs head coach, OHL champion, and former NHL defenseman Jay McKee. Jay, how are you today? I'm doing good, Matt. How are you? I'm good. Sorry that it's not good. Jeff, but uh, we'll power through this. Um, this one, <laughs> okay. this one will put this one will put a smile on your face. Um, when yeah. I uh, this is a personal thing um, because I know this guy pretty well. Um, when I say the name Jason Forche, what comes to your mind? <laughs> a good, a good, fun person, a great, great coach. <laughs> and for those yeah. that don't know, Jason Forche was uh, was was an assistant with the Kitchener Rangers, and now he's an assistant yeah. with the University of Maine. Yes, uh, Jay actually coached me in a prospects tournament, and he actually coached my brother-in-law in junior hockey. So we go back a long, long way. Um, yeah. On your squad. Last night, you guys get the victory in Game 7. You win the OHL Championship, the J. Ross Robertson Cup. And, you know, when I look at your team, it's not a team that is littered with NHL draft picks. Like when you look at some of the other, you know, if you look at Edmonton, who's littered with NHL draft picks, you guys had good performances from overage stars. And, of course, Mason McTavish as, as, you know, arguably your best player. Um, Why did this mix work so well? Well, I, I think we had guys that, that had breakout years. You look at Logan Morrison, Avery Hayes, Ryan Humphrey, George Diaco, Meshack, the list goes on. Um, you know, what, what was special about this team is, is they're such an incredibly coachable group of kids, such a, uh, just a great tight group. Um, the, the coaching was easy. You know, we, we really focused a lot throughout the season on, on how we wanted to play and less on, you know, pre-scouting the other teams, but we didn't have the cross-conference uh, games like in most years. You know, we didn't see Windsor all year, didn't see Kitchener, didn't see London. So we were seeing the same teams a little bit more often, and we really focused on uh, how we wanted to play and, and creating that into the players uh, before playoffs. And uh, these guys just—they—they—they they, they all had an engine on them that that never quit. Uh, when you look over the course of the regular season and playoffs, uh, we played somewhere close to 90 games. Uh, there might have been three games. I think they didn't bring a, a, a full effort, and uh, you know, just just a special group to be able to say that as a coach, and you know, to be as, as proud as we we were as a staff with this group. Uh, just just incredibly special group. You mentioned I mentioned Nathan um, Mason McTavish, and sorry, I was looking yeah. at the roster, and Nathan Steos's name came up. We will get to him, um, but yeah. Mason McTavish starts the year off in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. He comes back, and then he ends up on the Olympic team. It's kind of been all over the place for him. But what was the transition like for him to go from pro to junior? Because everybody might say, oh, well, it's easy because, you know, he's he's going and playing against men, where in this case, he's coming back and he's playing against boys. But the pace is different. The the players you're playing with is, is different. How did he adjust to come back? And, and how important has he been to the squad? Yeah, I, well, he, his importance is uh, astronomical. He's, he's such a game breaker, as, as we saw in the last couple of games. But... I think it was a challenging year for him because he, you know, started in the NHL. He, he went to Peterborough. He was traded to us. Um, you know, went to the World Juniors for a bit. That got shut down. Um, when when he was with us, he was there for two weeks, and then he was gone for a month, and then he came back and kind of had to re-situate himself again. Then next thing you know, we're in the, the playoffs. So it's been a busy year for him. Um, I, I'm sure it was challenging at times. Uh, you know, we, we, we tried to limit his ice time. We, we tried to balance out our ice time and not overuse him, especially when he got back from 
uh, playoffs or, or sorry, not playoffs from the Olympics. Um, and I think that helped, uh, you know, it, it helped kind of his energy reserves. And then when we, we needed him more in the playoffs, we really ramped him up, especially this, uh, this last series and he adjusted great. So no, he, he's a, uh, he's, he's a special hockey player, a, a special kid, just loves the game, loves being on the ice and at the arena. And he was uh, a pleasure to, uh, to have our team this year. We've seen what he does with the puck when it's on his stick, and and it's mesmerizing at times. Like we saw it even at the World Juniors, where I think he went around the net twice, and I and it just blows your mind that a player can do that at that kind of level. But is there a part of his game that we don't talk about enough? Well, I, th- I think with guys like him that can can score, he's a natural goal scorer, can put up the points, has a great shot. He has a really high engine too. He has a really, really high compete level. You know, you see guys that can put up the big numbers. Uh, they usually, not usually, but some of them only play one way on the puck. When they have the puck, they're going. And when they go in the corners, they kind of fish for it and, and try to play a bit of a softer game. He's got a really competitive edge to him where uh, he likes to get into guys. He really works for the getting the, the puck retrievals. And it's really a, a complete game. And he's going to be a fun player to watch for a long time. I uh, mentioned Nathan Stales earlier, and and obviously he, he's got a pretty good gene pool going. Um, but he had a he had a really kind of breakout year this year, sixty six points, um, and and he, he was he's just he's been a, a real nice player for you. And and NHL teams are going to come calling. Um, what is it about his game that, or at least coming into this year, that changed that made him that much better? I think with Nate, probably confidence. Uh, he really had a lot of confidence this year. And, and you know, he put up big numbers. And, and usually when you see a player receive the honor of defenseman of the year in the, the Ontario Hockey League, uh, they're usually around the tops in the in the point scoring. And, and he was. He was tops this year. But I, I think the, the biggest thing about his game, we also used him to play against other teams' top lines uh, quite often. So he he really has the, the all-around game. He's got a shutdown game. He plays... You know, he's not the biggest player on the ice, but he's got incredible mobility and agility, and he plays with a real physical edge for a guy that isn't a 6'3", 6'4", kind of defenseman. Um, so he's really got the, the complete package and, and the ability to shut down, to close, to play physical, yet also dance the offensive zone uh, blue line and, and, and run the power play. So he's, uh, yeah, he's an absolute complete all-around player, and just played with a ton of swagger and confidence, and that's exactly uh, what we needed out of him this year. You know, and confidence is obviously such a big thing when we talk about players, especially at that age. You know, you see the younger guys that come up, and, and maybe they struggle a little bit, and, and sometimes the the light switch just goes off. And and for Logan Morrison, he, you know, his second year in the league, 45 points, but then he explodes this year. And he was, you know, one of the guys that you mentioned that had a breakout year. I mean, 100 points yeah. is no slouch. Was it a confidence thing with him as well, or were there parts of his game that he fine-tuned and and is you know becomes an elite scorer in the OHL? You know what he, he yeah probably confidence too. He came into the season uh, and just really he started off great and didn't stop. And, and those hundred points he put up, I think he probably missed uh, you know about ten or twelve games too, maybe or, or eight somewhere in that range. So. You know, in the full season, he's putting up about 115 points. Um, he just played uh, right from out of the gates. He's a, a player that, that just seems to slow down, slows down the game. You know, and sees things happen before they actually happen. He can find the seam passes and 
uh, you know, really deceptive on his own stick and changing the shot lanes. And, and uh, you know, you never know if he's going to shoot or pass. Um, and, and being our top point producer, he's also a guy that really led the way for me and, and our team in playing both ways on the puck. Um, you know, I, I had a couple of people ask what the secret to, you know, our success was when we were on a, on a winning streak. I think we, we 22 or 24 games in a row and then somewhere in the middle of that I was asked and, you know, with guys like Morrison who are put up uh, the most points in our team playing such a good two-way game, it really encouraged everyone to buy into that. And I felt like every night we were having 12 forwards play a 200-foot game. There was no passengers. There was no guys that were playing only one way on the puck and not burying their head or getting above pucks in the ozone. So I think a guy like Morrison leading the way um, uh, in that department really helped the whole team in, in general. Well, you know, the, the the star power on the team is is very evident and, you know, leading the way Mason McTavish being drafted third overall is, of course, near, the, near or at the top of that list. But is there a player that you think doesn't get enough uh, spotlight, doesn't get enough praise for, for how much they mean to your team? Uh, we got a few of those guys. Um, I, I, I would say a guy that's in his draft here, Patrick Thomas. Um, He's a forward who, um, you know, didn't put up a ton of points early early in the season, but worked really hard. He started off on our fourth line, um, almost didn't make the team, um, you know, in the beginning of the season. The reason he got his opportunity was uh, Ryan Winterton had separated his shoulder. So we brought Patty back uh, right after training camp and started on the fourth line as a winger, moved to a center. Uh, by the end of the season, uh, Patrick Thomas had, earned a spot on the left wing playing as Mason's uh, with Mason McTavish and Ryan Winterton. Um, you know, and, and after playing with those two for a little while, I had asked uh, Mason, I said, Hey, you, you've played with a bunch of different guys in our team. Now, who do you feel most comfortable with? I wanted to know who, you know, we, Morrison's line was kind of set. I wanted to know who, who Mac felt he, he would play best with. And the first thing that he said was Patrick Thomas, uh, one of my left wing. So I think for, for Patty being kind of an unknown in his draft year to have a guy like Mason McTavish say, I want, I want this guy on my wing. Uh, there's no bigger compliment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Patrick Thomas really earned the respect of the, the coaching staff management, his teammates. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope the scouts that were able to see him because he just has an endless motor, a really high IQ, uh, great teammate and a, and a kid that I hope uh, finds his way in the draft this summer. Certainly heavy praise coming from uh, from Mason McTavish. Jay McKee, yeah. head coach of the OHL champion Hamilton Bulldogs, joining Matt Marchese on the Jeff Merrick Show. Um, as you prepare for the Memorial Cup, like you, you're you're so heavily involved in in your series with Windsor, and and maybe you have you know one eye on what else is going on in the other leagues. Do you get to watch much of the other teams? Like it feels like you know um, the other leagues have a little bit of an advantage in terms of they just get to watch a little bit more because they were yeah. done before you guys were. How do you how do you kind of keep an eye on both things, or are you just as the coach saying, you know what, my focus is winning here, and then I'll deal with who I'm playing in the Memorial Cup when I got to deal with it. You know, as much as we're we're coaches, we're fans of the sport, right? So um, you know, we would be doing all the pre scouting and, and preparation for the teams that we could foresee ourselves playing next, obviously we would have to focus on the series that we're in, but we're also watching the NHL playoffs. We're also watching the CHL playoffs. So 
Um, you know, we're not specifically watching and saying, "Hey, we're going to the World Cup, so we're gonna we're gonna start focusing on this." It was as a fan of the sport and, and you know being curious at how other teams are playing and. Even a team like uh, the Winnipeg Ice, uh, James Patrick is a former teammate of mine. So as a friend of his, I was watching their games uh, against Edmonton, um, you know, hoping James would win, and, and but at the same time learning a little bit about Edmonton and and the other teams. So no, we're we're uh, in a roundabout way. We're we're scouting while also being a fan of uh, watching hockey and watching the sport. And, uh, you know, I remember watching you as a player and, and the first thing that that comes to mind is, is how good of a shot blocker you were, how much of it is, how much of the art of shot blocking is I'm just going to put myself out there and how much of it is a technique. Cause I know it hurts like hell either way, but is there, is there something that like for a defenseman out there, any advice that you could give them on blocking shots? Because I was a forward growing yeah. up and I only learned how to block shots when I was like, 18 playing junior and that was a long time after <laughs> i was done so i mean what's the what's the art form with well, this I, truthfully it, it number one it just takes desire to do it um it, it does hurt at times and, and some guys you know as a player like myself when i played the game i wasn't scoring a lot of goals so for me to help my team it was preventing goals and, and if i blocked a shot that hurt hey you know what that's the badge of honor i'm trying i'm helping my team right um, so, so it's, it's desire that there is a little bit of, uh, technique, obviously the, the angle of where the shot's coming from, uh, being close enough to your man that if it's a shot pass, you can get to your guy knowing where the net is, not screaming the goalie. And then most importantly, making yourself big, you know, when you see wingers go out to block a shot, if they stand up straight, they're making themselves as small as they can. If they turn their bodies and their feet. You're making your, you know, you're making yourself a lot bigger to block that shot. You're taking the angle down, so there is a technique to it. And you know, I, I don't, <clears throat> I haven't preached much all year to my players about blocking shots. I didn't make it a, a main focal point. I don't want to turn my players into young Jamie Keys because you're not going to score a lot of goals <laughs> if you if you do that. Um, but ironically, I, I, I did after uh, game three. We we had let in six long long shots outside the top of the circles in our first three games after game three i drove to seven different canadian tires just looking for those orange sponge pucks i came up with 12 <laughs> so I, I drove between hamilton and toronto seven different canadian tires i found 12 sponge pucks and uh we, we were trying to loosen our guys up in between game and three and four we were down two one we felt like we were playing tight and Try to try to get them laughing, and, and but at the same time work on something and have the mentality to get in the shot lanes. There was a goal specifically in game three that went through three of our players and into the net. So uh, the next day in practice, we set up a drill. But before that, I brought the pucks out. I had all the players stand at the blue line, and I told Mason and Arbor Jack, I and Morris, and I threw the pucks in front of them. I stood in front of our goal and I said, "Shoot away!" and, and just to get our guys laughing, right? And, they kind of fired a couple soft shots, and I said, "Mason, shoot the, you know, puck, like get at it." And the guys started laughing. So now we've got, you know, Mason shooting absolute bombs at me while I'm standing in front of the net. And I took my, uh, <laughs> I took my jacket off, so I'm standing there, just a t-shirt, uh, and my stick and you know hat on, and, and the guys are laughing, and Mason's ripping these missiles at me that are going off my shins and my arms, and the boys are laughing. So yeah. It, that was actually a bit of a turning point for us just in the sense of humor. You know, you got your players ripping shots at your coach and, uh, but it was kind of a message too. anybody can do this and we need to do this. And, uh, I think we only let in one more shot from, uh, outside the top of the circles of the next four games. So 
it was uh, a fun moment for the team and I think maybe a bit of a turning point in loosening the tension and uh, and also getting the mentality of blocking shots. Who would have thought that driving from Hamilton to Toronto and back again for Orange Pucks would be the turning point in the Hamilton Bulldogs yeah. season? You heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, Jay, Jay, thank you so much for, for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. And and good luck in the Memorial Cup. We'll be, we'll be watching and uh, and we wish you all the best. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. There he goes, Jay McKee, head coach of the OHL champion Hamilton Bulldogs, who are on their way to the Memorial Cup. What a great story that was. The Orange Pucks and and Jay McKee, who was, as we know, very adept at blocking regular black pucks, but standing in front of the net and letting Mason McTavish fire the sponge orange pucks at him just to kind of lighten the mood ends up could be the turning point in the Hamilton Bulldog season. What a what a what a great story that was. Sorry Jeff couldn't finish off the show, but hopefully he'll have his power back on tomorrow. A big thank you to our guests that joined the show today, Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts, Geraldine Heaney, the newest head coach of the Toronto Six and of course 2013 Hockey Hall of Fame inductee, Chris Cuthbert from Hockey Night in Canada, and as we just spoke to Jay McKee, head coach of the OHL champion Hamilton Bulldogs. That's it for the Jeff Merrick show for today. Matt Marchese who filled in here on the last segment. Like I said, Jeff will be back tomorrow as we continue. One more day again before the Stanley Cup Finals resume on Saturday, but we'll have more on game two as it approaches on the weekend. You've been listening to the Jeff Merrick show. Matt Marchese filling in. We'll be back tomorrow.